0: The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, as we begin in chapter 2, Joshua is now moving in and he's, he's sent two spies into the land, two spies to check out Jericho and the land, and they've gone into the city of Jericho and they've sought lodging at Rahab, the harlot's house. And as they've gone into her to hide, um, we pick it up here where Rahab now addresses them in beginning in verse 9. She says, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The testimony of Israel and the testimony of their God went far and wide before them. And these people knew what was coming. You know, I've often wondered as as Israel moves in and conquers these cities, how they seem to do it with, I don't want to say ease, but they seem to take over very easily. And, of course, we know that the Lord was with them. But I think we have an indication here of what happens. Because, as Rahab said, there was no spirit left in any man because of you. You see, when they came up against someone, they were already beat mentally, spiritually, and so God triumphed, I think, before the men even got there. But as we begin this morning, I want I want to start by pointing out some keys in these verses nine through thirteen to begin with. First, what is it that causes one to see the details? Rahab was not the only one who heard the stories of what was coming, but she's the only one that took action. There was a Jewish testimony, which led to fear, and then to a plea for mercy. So Rahab takes a stand against the world of Canaan. Rahab did not know Jesus. She had no Bible. No preacher proclaimed the truth of God to her. Yet Rahab learned about God and determined to follow him, whatever the decision might cost her. Now let's begin by looking at the two spies this morning. Rahab's story is set in the context of the story of the conquest of the land. It's very intertwined with the story of Joshua sending the spies into Jericho, just as Moses had sent the spies in to report on the land years before. It's interesting that Joshua sent two spies, I don't know if this was uh, Jim, him being very clever after knowing the first time when 12 were sent, 10 negatives came back, he probably felt a little more comfortable just sending two. And I'm sure he handpicked the two to make sure that they would bring back a positive report. I also believe that he had been directed by God to take this action. The text doesn't say it explicitly, and in fact, some scholars believe that Joshua wasn't really following God and showing faith because he had to send these men, men in ahead, But I believe that just as important was the information that the spies were going to bring back was what happened next, because if the, if the spies were sent in, in obedience to God, as I believe they were, then we probably would be right in thinking that the spies were sent in specifically for Rahab and her family. Given the way God was going to deliver Jericho, I don't think Joshua needed a whole lot of information. What was needed there was arrangements by which Rahab and her family could be saved when Jericho was taken. The situation here is similar to that in John 4.4, 4, where it to, we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. You recall that uh, there were other roads to get past Samaria to get on the way to Jericho. But Jesus specifically took this road in order to witness and save one of his elect. As we know, what Jesus has said, that not one of these elect sheep will be lost. So Jesus entered Samaria to save the Samaritan woman in the same way the spies went in to save Rahab. And and incidentally, this was an adulterous woman as well. The spies didn't know the the course of their actions, as we never know when God sends us on an errand. But God's plan was very clear, and he was working it through this daughter of his soon-to-be daughter, Rahab. In the divine view of things, this was a key reason. God had been working in Rahab's heart, leading her to true faith, and now he was sending the messengers to confirm her faith And save her physically. And it's interesting that the very first character, other than Joshua himself in this book, is Rahab and her story. So, this obviously brings us to a point of God's grace. Because God's grace is just as real and prominent in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Another way of looking at the story of Rahab, the first story in Joshua's book is one of mercy instead of wrath. Joshua is a book of harsh consequences. And the premise for the particular destruction and the conquest of Jericho is spoken of in Genesis 15, 16, when it says the sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. That is, the people were ripe for judgment. And although Joshua, and all through Joshua, rather, we see God commending the Jews to utterly destroy nations occupying the land, a judgment that hasn't been seen since the flood of Noah. Yet even in the book of harsh judgment, the very first story is about salvation of the harlot of Jericho. This is a story of great mercy because Rahab had absolutely nothing going for her, humanly speaking. This is, a, is so striking that I think we need to take a couple of minutes just to look at her liabilities. First of all, she was a Gentile. It's true that throughout the long history, God's people had saved or God had moved in and saved some Gentiles. We think of Ruth the Moabitess and Naaman the Syrian. Still, as Jesus said later, salvation is from the Jews in John 4.22. And the only real advantage at that time was to be a Jew. Romans 3, 1 through 2, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had everything going for them, picked by God, given the laws, guided through life, victories over battle. They had it all. Romans 9, 4 and 5, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And Rahab had none of this, and that's the whole point, that's the whole point. It was Israel who possessed all these truths. Rahab had none of these things. She was a Gentile and was therefore, as Paul later told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And just like Rahab, you and I, apart from Christ, have no hope. Secondly, she was an Amorite. The Amorites were only one of many people who occupied the land, but they were a brutal people, sacrificing their own children to their gods. And she was part of this, this group of people. And then three, she was a prostitute. Now, it's obvious, given her conversation with the spies, that she, in hearing the story of, of the Jews, was wanting salvation from the coming destruction and, and for her family. She clearly states this in Joshua 2, verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab confessed he is the God. But she was still identified as a prostitute, at least in reputation. And it's undoubtedly why the spies went to her. Now, I'm not suggesting they went for immoral reasons, but what better place to hide and avoid people asking questions? To go there was a stroke of genius, actually, because moreover, when the king heard of the spies had gone to Rahab and sent to have them brought to him, he seemed to accept as normal that men would go to Rahab and that the report that they left as soon as they got there would have been easy to believe. No, there there is no doubt that she was a prostitute, just as the Samaritan woman was an immoral woman. It's merely another case of the great inexplicable grace of God saving a soul. It also makes it very clear that no life is beyond saving. There is no one who is messed up so bad that God can't save you. And that's one of the great messages that we have today. So the other thing I want you to notice about her is that faith comes by hearing. In spite of Rahab's grim list of liabilities, a Gentile, an Amorite, a prostitute, this pagan woman had at least one thing going for her. She had heard about the God of Israel. And as a result of that, she believed in the true God. And as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Rahab heard and believed. Now let me remind you again of Joshua 2 verses 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. She knew in her heart. She believed in her heart that he was the God. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he it is. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she expressed a very strong faith in what was happening. Now, undoubtedly, there was much about the faith in the history of Israel that Rahab didn't know. She had heard only of God God's acts in delivering the Jews from Egypt, and of the victory he had given them with the two uh, Amorite leaders on the east of the Jordan. But that was enough. She did not have the adoption, she didn't have the covenants, the law, the worship, or the promises. But she had ears, and she heard what God, about God did, and what he did, and believed on him. And as a result, she heard with her ears and with her heart. The truth of faith of of, uh, Rahab is important for us. And it's very important for us to understand Rahab's true faith. Why did the people of Jericho's hearts melt and Rahab believe? Often, you and I are more like the people, the other people of Jericho. When trials come, we melt. When things don't go to suit us and things get difficult, we melt. Rahab believed in the true God and cast herself in that direction. So the true faith of Rahab is important. When we say that Rahab heard with her heart as well as her ears, we're saying that she believed God. And this is what she is praised for in the New Testament. In fact, do you realize Rahab is held up as a model of of faith two times in the New Testament? Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The, the New Testament doesn't try to gloss over her. You notice it didn't say, by faith, Rahab did not perish. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute. And every one of us could be spoken of in that way. By faith, Craig, the sinner, trusted Christ. Put your own name in there. And this is an important thing to realize. James 2, verse 25, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the message and sent them out another way? Here is true faith because it's faith in action. She acted on what she believed. And something we have to really understand is that Rahab did far more than just believe. There's three things I think that's important for us to know. First of all, Rahab put her life on the line. She risked her own life and the life of her family for those spies. Jericho was not a nice town. It was a a military outpost and a very hardcore place. And had they found out about Rahab, her life wouldn't have been worth a plug nickel. And you know something? Today, the gospel seems more about self-fulfillment. The truth is, it's about self-denial. Jesus said very plainly in the gospels of Matthew 16 and again in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. You don't hear that preached very often today. And this is not about self-fulfillment. It's it's about self-denial. Jesus even said, if you come after me, it may cost your family. Seriously? In fact, if you come after me, you may have to give everything away. You remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? He said, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, give away all you have, give it to the poor take up your cross, and follow me. And what did he do? He walked away. There is a high cost for following Jesus. It's not about me feeling good and being blessed. That's a message that's far too, pushed far too much out there. You don't have much because you don't have enough faith. You haven't prayed hard enough. No. True Christianity is when we die to self. That's why Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not about what I can get. It's about what I can give. And you know something? This is why many fell away from Jesus when he was on earth. This is why they cried out, crucify him. Because the message he gave was one of surrender. One of death to self. And they couldn't cope with that. They followed him for the miracles and the wonderful things. But when the rubber met the road, here's what I want from you. Take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. And no. And they You've crucified him. Do you realize that's the same message for you and I today? You and I are called upon to deny ourselves and put him first every area of our life. He is to rule and reign. That's why the apostle Paul said, I die daily. Paul had to every day make a conscious effort to die to himself and follow Christ. We hear the Bible talks about the abundant life, that Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But that's not talking about riches. It's talking about being eternally saved now. It's talking about being free from guilt, free from judgment. That's the abundant life. And that's the life that you and I are called to. Secondly, Rahab renounced her past and her people. She knew that if the Jews succeeded, they would utterly destroy the inhabitants of Jericho. She also knew that if, if the Canaanites would, destroy, would win, they'd destroy all the Jews. Yet she renounced her past and, for, and forsake suck all she knew for the glory of God and his people. And then third, Rahab identified with the Jewish people. She was not a Jew. But since she believed in the Jewish God, she now instinctively understood where her place was with this new people. In other words, in passing out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, she also passed out of the natural citizenship of Jericho into the citizenship of the children of God. God accepted her new allegiance. Now, we might imagine that she would have been accepted as somewhat of a second-class citizen, something like the Gibeonites who were allowed to live amongst the Jews as woodcutters and water carriers for the community. We'll see that when we get to Joshua chapter twenty or chapter nine. But that is not what happened. Though she was a Gentile, an Amorite, a prostitute, when she turned to God, she was immediately accepted as a full member of the favored nation she married a Jew and became the ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ now think of this she married a man of the tribe of Judah named Solomon. their son was Boaz who married Ruth the Moabite their son was Obed who was the father of Jesse who was the father of King David I mean is that amazing Think of this woman. I mean, most people would pass her by as trash. She became royalty. She became royalty and placed in the line of our Savior. She became a royal person. And when you accept Christ, folks, you become royalty. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He illuminates you. This is exactly what he did for Rahab. You want to know how to defeat negativism and wrong decisions in your life? Then remind yourself you are no longer your own. You are a person for his possession. His possession. You belong to him. He purchased you from the slave market of sin. He has a life for you, completely organized, to lead you in a way to glorify him. Everything about us ought to be of surrender. Surrendering our lives, our careers, everything for the excellency of Jesus Christ. We are, are a people for his own possession. Think about that the next time you're prompted to be discouraged or wonder what's, what he's doing or how he could be doing anything when life seems so upside down. And you know, it's something that we all deal with, isn't it? When things get upside down and life gets difficult, we immediately melt and look at what is going on. God, where are you? What are you doing here? I'm trusting you. But 1 Peter 2 9 says, We are a people of his own possession. What he's doing, he does for his glory. And what he is doing is for your good. So our reaction ought to be to trust and obey more than fearing and trembling. So you have this Rahab in this city of Jericho. The word comes out, the Israelites are coming. They know all the stories. It's obvious to, the, to them that their God must be the God if he's parting Red Seas and letting them come across in dry land. They got something going on, and they all just melt in fear. But Rahab stands strong and believes, and she takes all the steps of faith to secure her, the, her freedom and the freedom of her family. And so naturally, that brings us to the scarlet cord. Because Rahab's experience parallels that of everyone who comes to Christ in faith today. Joshua 2, verses 17 and 18, Rahab has made this request to them. So the spies said to her, the men said to her, "'We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear.'" Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Rahab agreed, tied the scarlet cord in her window, and when they came in, they spared her and spared her family. There's a very direct similarity here that's been discussed down through the ages of the scarlet cord and the scarlet blood placed above the doorposts when the angel of death came in to free the Israelites. You see, the Israelites had scarlet blood over their doors to protect them. Rahab had a scarlet cord hanging in her window to protect her. And when you and I trust Jesus Christ, we have the scarlet blood of Christ over our lives. That's the way he saves. And one thing is for sure. We were all dead in trespasses and sins just as Rahab was before a holy God. Do you have the scarlet cord of mercy and grace? Have you surrendered to him and given him your life? You see, the cool thing about this is that the glorious message of the cross is that God treated Jesus as if he lived my life, and he now treats me as if I lived Christ's life. Think of the amazing truth. That's the whole message of justification, that God looks at you as if you had never sinned. He sees you through the blood of his son. So the message is consistent all through scripture. He saves to the uttermost. And this morning, as as you sit here and consider this wretched woman who was marvelously saved, and not just saved, but brought in as royalty and blessed and cared for and put her in the line of the Savior, understand that the message of the gospel to you today is that when you trust Christ, you are a royal priest. You are now in the line of salvation and you have an eternity secured with a Heavenly Father. That, folks, is the abundant life. And that is what he wants to do to each one of you. And you may be here this morning, and if you never trusted Christ, maybe you're concerned about it, please don't leave today without letting us know because <clears throat> we want to show you how you can experience this abundant life. You might be here a Christian, and life just isn't good right now. I get it. I understand, but you need to understand that as a person of his possession, he will work through you to perfect his will. Will you take courage like Rahab did? Will you step out in faith and follow him through thick and thin, knowing that he has promised all things to you and in a glorious eternity? Now we come to, to a communion now and we, we reflect on the reality of what what this is, the reality that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. This table is for those of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior. If you're not a member, you're visiting with us, that's fine, it's your table. If you have never trusted Christ, I would ask you to abstain because this table as yet is not for you. But pray and trust Christ that you may understand As the men are coming now, and before we go to meditation, um, I always take you to to 1 Corinthians 11, and we read several verses regarding this. But I want to this morning just kind of put a little background on this, especially in light of, of the message, because Paul often in these books were admonishing the Corinthians about being out of line and handling things differently. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Beginning in verse 17, talking about the Lord's Supper, he says, "...but in the, in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there is divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized." But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment." Let's take a few moments and let's just meditate on this truth. Father, I ask now that as we begin this table, may our hearts be pure before you. May we be very mindful of the reality of what this is, this sample of remembrance of what you did for us. I pray, Lord, that you would work deeply in the hearts of each one of us, that we might be true to you, love you with a whole heart. In Christ's name. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes and it is our custom here at the end of communion to stand and join hands we'll sing a chorus amazing grace Father, we thank you for the sight that you've given us. We thank you for the blessed truths of redemption, of grace, mercy that we saw in Rahab today. I pray, Lord, that you would cause each one of us to examine our hearts and truthfully before you examine our relationship. Are you King Jesus in our lives? Or are we still seeking our own way, our own pleasures, and our own desires? Life will never reach peace, true peace, until we're totally surrendered to you. And I pray you would do that work in the hearts of each one of us. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless.